Uh, at this time, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I want to look at uh, Luke chapter 1 with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 46 through 55 today, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. As Luke begins his gospel, he starts by weaving together the birth accounts of two very important men, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is perhaps the most significant prophet of the Old Covenant. He points forward as a forerunner to the light that would come in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, is God's son. God's son. He's the Messiah for Israel, but he's the Savior for the world. And so Luke weaves these two birth predictions and birth accounts together in Luke chapter 1 and 2. After predicting their births in Luke chapter 1, Luke figuratively brings the mothers of both babies onto the stage of the chapter to reveal their initial conversation about what God was doing in them. And so the scenes that we see in the middle of Luke chapter 1 uh, open up a window into how both, both women are thinking and how they're initial, initially responding to the miraculous pregnancies that they experience. If you were here Christmas Eve uh, for afternoon service, we looked at Elizabeth's response, elderly Elizabeth, who perhaps was in her 70s when she conceives and gives birth. We saw that response in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Just a few verses there in that chapter which give us Elizabeth's response. When they have their conversation, you have to remember Elizabeth is six months pregnant and she hears Mary's greeting, and the text says that she's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, but as you're reading, you find out she's not the only person filled with the Holy Spirit. If you were here uh, Friday, you know that uh, the little child in her womb, the little prophet, John the Baptist, while he's still in the womb, is also filled with the Spirit. And although he can't see yet, being six months old in the womb, and he can't speak yet, he uh, behaves like a prophet. He responds in the way that he can. He leaps in the womb when he's introduced to Mary out of joy, the text says, for what this means for the world. That's when Elizabeth responds with a song. That's how I take verses 42 through 45. It's a song from Elizabeth. Uh, and in this song, in humility, she's overwhelmed that God would show her favor that God would honor her among all of the women in all of the world, that the mother of her Lord would come and meet with her. And she blesses Mary because Mary has had faith to believe that, uh, what God said he would do through the angel Gabriel. Today, I want to look at the following verses, 46 through 55. And we consider how Mary responds. Okay, so in this initial conversation, how Elizabeth and Mary react to Christ. And Mary's response is a song too. It's an amazing composition. It's been referred to by theologians uh, as the Magnificat. And the reason it's called that is for the first word in a Latin translation of this in Latin Vulgate, Magnificat. For many liberal scholars, though, it's hard for them to believe or impossible for them to believe that a teenage girl 
would be able to compose this. A teenager, likely 13 or 14 or something like that. That she would be able to compose such a high and lofty song. A simple country girl from Judea. Yet this song fits within the tradition of ancient Jewish hymns. And more importantly, is to be seen as a personal song of thanksgiving from Mary. We don't know for sure if she composed this spontaneously in the, on the spot with Elizabeth or whether she's had a few days in her journey down to elderly Elizabeth's house, whether she's been thinking on these themes for quite some time. Regardless, this song is Mary's. Now, before we dig in and we look at every verse in this passage, uh, I want to see if there's anything more we can learn about the nature of this song. And two things stuck out to me in big picture as I looked at this song this week. First, one of the qualities would be that this song is God-centered. In this song, young teenage girl, Mary, continually returns to what God has done for her and for the Israelite people. So at the beginning, in verses 46 and 47, she talks about the Lord, and she talks about God, her Savior. Then, in verse 49, she describes the one who is mighty and what he has done for her, and then she describes his name as being holy. She then concludes in verses 51 through 55 by listing out seven other things that God has done for the people of Israel. You see, she fills this song with the works and the names of God. It struck me this week that in a gathering of this size, it's quite possible that some of you will compose worship songs in praise of the Lord. If you do, or when you do, you would be... Uh, you would follow a very good example if you follow Mary's example in her hymn here of making your song God-centered. But secondly, I describe the nature of a song this way. It is word-saturated, and I hope to be able to demonstrate that to you as we go throughout our time together today. In form, this song is like many of the Psalms of the Old Testament. It's like a psalm that goes from personal considerations to what God is doing for his people. So in form, this song is a psalm of thanksgiving that Mary likely patterns after her readings in the Psalms. She composes this song in praise to the Lord. In content, Mary's song echoes many places of the Old Testament scripture. It's thoroughly saturated with scripture. If you, for instance, were to compare her song to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel, you would see many parallels. Likely, no doubt, as she considers what God has done in her own womb, she considers God's gift to Hannah in the Old Testament for her. But it doesn't stop there. There are many allusions or echoes throughout this passage of other great events in the Old Testament, including the exodus, the defeat of the Philistines, I think the, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. Mary knew the word quite well. It's clear. And I hope to point out some of that to you as we go through here. So let's look more closely at what she says in her song. Mary's song has two parts to it from my perspective, two parts that move from what God has done for her, verses 46 through 49, to what God has done for his people, verses 50 through 55. Okay, so a simple outline today. What God has done for her, 
and what God has done for his people. So we start with what God has done for her, verse 46. Look there in your Bible. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. This first part of the song is about what God has done for her in this miraculous conception. As Mary breaks into song in verse 46, she explains that this song comes from the core of her inner being. She describes it as her soul and spirit. Her soul and spirit sing out about what God has done. This is her entire inner being. More specifically, she says her soul magnifies the Lord. The word magnify speaks of the desire of her soul to enlarge or greatly extol God. She wants to be like a magnifying glass. She doesn't want to make God bigger than he is. That's impossible. She simply wants to make him bigger in the eyes of others. Her soul not only magnifies God, she rejoices in her spirit in God, her Savior. If you remember in the song before this, in Elizabeth's song, she recognizes in the embryo in this womb is her Lord. Remember that? Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord has come to me. And here Mary recognizes something about this little baby in her womb. This little baby is her Savior. He is the one who will save her from her sins. And so her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, because he has looked on her humble estate, the text says. No one was lowlier than she was in her, from her own perspective. She was a poor, young, peasant girl, betrothed to a carpenter. She was a simple Jewish woman of the lowest class, and from this lowly position, Mary has been chosen for the highest honor that any human being could receive. God has looked upon her humble estate. But I think there's development even within this little part of Mary's song here. It goes from God looking on her to God acting for her. You look in verse 49, the mighty God has not only looked upon her humble estate, the mighty God has done great things for her. Here, providence completely overwhelms her in this part of the song. She's so humbled that God would see her of all of the women. In all of the world, God sees her and acts on her behalf. This is the first part of Mary's song. It's about what God has done for her. If you're here today during this Christmas season, I trust that as you reflect on what God has done for Mary, you as well can rejoice in the blessings and the way that God has shown mercy and grace to you as well. This Christmas season be a great time to reflect upon how he has loved you and cared for you as well. If you're here today and you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, I encourage you this Christmas to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation from your sins so that you can rejoice in God being near you and close to you and looking upon you and acting on your behalf. But the second part of the song uh, advances to what God has done for Israel. Look at verse 50. 
And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The second half of Mary's song here rejoices in God's mercy. It frames the entire second stanza here. If you look in verse 50, you see it there, and his mercy. And then you look in the middle of verse 54, near the end, uh, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So what she wants to draw attention to in her song is the mercy of God demonstrated to a particular sort of people. And she makes that clear who she's talking about in this text. At the beginning of verse 50, she says it's those who fear God. But then she makes it even more clear in verse 54 who she's describing. It's God's servant, the people of Israel. She wants to rejoice in the mercy of God demonstrated to those who've been faithful among the people of Israel in the second half of her song. Now, one of the big questions about Mary's song is whether she reflects, in verses 51 through 55, what God has done for Israel in the past, or is she talking about what God is going to do through Jesus for Israel in the future? Okay, and there's a great deal of debate about it. To understand Mary's song, you've got to figure out and you've got to actually make a choice. Is it Israel in the past or Israel in the future? It, it, and the words that she uses uh, are often understood and translated in ways that it seems to be talking about the past. But she could be describing things using them as having been accomplished already because she's confident that through Jesus this will happen. It's like Paul in Romans, chapter 8, memory says, those he justified, he also, and he goes through, and he, those he also glorified. Well, we haven't been glorified yet, but Paul's so confident, he says, it's like it's already happened. So she might be talking about Israel in the future, but uh, I think after looking all of these things in great detail, at, in every way imaginable this week, I want to suggest that it's more likely she's thinking about significant works that God has already performed in the past for the people of Israel. And so from my perspective, and you could, you, could, you could look at this, I'm going to make a case for this, you could think about this. I think Mary is alluding to specific Old Testament events when God acted on behalf of the people of Israel. That is, she narrates some of the greatest events of deliverance from the Old Testament in the final portion of her song. We might not always be able to identify exactly which event she's thinking about, but some of them are pretty clear. And so we look at the first one in verse 51. Look down your Bible in verse 51. First, God has shown strength with his arm. You see that there? God has shown strength with his arm. The metaphor of, of an arm, when combined with God, emphasizes his power. And while this metaphor is occasionally used in the Old Testament to talk about the power of God, it seems to me that Mary might have a very specific time in mind. She meditates upon Scripture. A time when God came with a strong arm to deliver Israel. As I did a study this week of the word arm and looked at it in reference to God, I found it twice in Exodus chapter 6. 
You could write down that chapter and you could, you could study it sometime this week. Twice in Exodus 6, Moses describes God as coming with an uplifted, strong arm to deliver Israel. And at that moment, when God came with a strong arm to deliver the people out of Egypt, Pharaoh's army drowns in the sea. But then second, she says, God also, verse 51, scattered the proud in their thoughts. Perhaps Mary thinks of a time when God scatters the Philistines by striking down their giant, Goliath. Before God intervenes through David and a small stone, the Philistines are proud in their thoughts and schemes. But then God acts, and they scatter. Mary also sings in verse 52 that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. You see that in your Bible? God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The mighty from their thrones speaks specifically of some powerful, unjust, political rulers or kings. They're on thrones that God brought down in the history of Israel. These tyrannical rulers oppressed and opposed the people of God. They opposed those who feared God. Perhaps she's thinking here of the wicked arrogance of some of the mighty kings of Assyria who came and captured the northern kingdom and had success for a time. Listen to the blazing arrogance of King Sennacherib of Assyria when he describes what he did to the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Or his successor, one of his successors, Esther Haddon, who said this. And listen to the arrogance of this king. You ready for this? Esther Haddon. He said, I am powerful. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. Those Assyrian kings came to an end through the Babylonian forces. Perhaps Mary thinks of someone like the mighty king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself. I invite you to turn back in your Bibles for just a moment to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Mary's composing this song, and she talks about the mighty ones on their throne that God brings down, that he's brought down. I can't think of a better example in the Holy Scripture than this chapter in Daniel chapter 4 regarding Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king who powerfully ransacked Jerusalem and besieged the city. He was a terror to the people of Israel, the southern kingdom, and he was full of himself. Remember, he made a golden image in his own likeness and he demanded that people bow, that his tributes bow down and worship it or face a fiery furnace. Yet God eventually humbles this mighty king. Look in your Bible at verse 28, and I just want to read through this text. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. 
Oh boy. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over to you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he will humble. As Mary composes this song and she thinks about all the good things that God has done for the Israelite people, she says, those ones who sat on thrones, those vaunted men who flaunted their powers, God, the text says, brought low. Go back to Luke chapter 1, and we'll close out her song, God brought them low. That, that verb there, God brought them low, or has brought them low, is the same verb that's used to describe what happens to Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. And uh, the man comes and takes, he takes him down from the cross. God takes down these mighty, arrogant kings. And then Mary continues in her song in verse 54, and God exalted those of humble estate. That is, he exalted those who feared him. He exalted those Israelites who followed him. Not only was Mary of humble estate, so too what were her people, the people of Israel. They were small, insignificant people in a little portion of the world. Yet God took them from their low estate and he exalted them. He lifted them up. God also has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Verse 53. I can think of many times in the Old Testament where God filled the Israelite people with all sorts of good things. Food, drink, righteousness and yet he turned away those who were not his people and finally verse 54 god has helped his servant israel god demonstrated throughout israel's history that he can make an exalted instrument out of human nothingness the history of the israelite people that we've been studying in the book of genesis reveals time and time again that their people, their history is filled with imperfect fallen men and women. Yet God was faithful to them and he helped them. And so this is how I understand Mary's song. It starts with a reflection upon what God is doing for her. And then she reflects about what, what God has done for his people throughout ages and generation. I think it's good to ask one last question. 
to try to make sense out of this song. And that is the question, why? Why did, Moses, why did Mary compose a song like this? And why does she reflect on the ways that God has worked for Israel in the past? And to answer that question, I would say that I, I think that she sees patterns in how God's work. She sees a trajectory with God. If God has done this in the past for Israel, then what can Israel expect from him in the future? And if God has performed a conception miracle so that his son is in her womb, then how should Israel expect God to work through him for their deliverance? You see, in her song, Mary connects what God has done for her with what God has done for his people. This personal thanksgiving song looks with anticipation at what God will do for them through this little baby that's in her womb. Today we've considered one of the most important songs, I think, to have ever been composed. It's a personal reflection on what God did in sending his son into the world. Won't you consider the importance of this event as well? And believe, as uh, our brother Jameson said earlier today, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Won't you believe in the name of the Son of God who sent into the womb of Mary to save the world from their sins? Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I reflect on what Simon Peter said in Acts 4. He says that salvation was found in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And my heart goes out for some of our guests, or perhaps even some who attend regularly, who have yet to believe in the name of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. I pray that this Christmas season, as we reflect upon Christmas and as we prepare for the end of this year, that this would be the time or the moment when they would say that you have been too much for them. Where they too would be overwhelmed with your providence, your plan to look upon them to see them and to help them. And Lord, as we reflect upon Mary's understanding and love for the word, I would pray for my brothers and sisters here as well. May this new year be a year where we, we learn to love the word as well. Where intimate knowledge of the word just pours through uh, our communication with others, our conversations with others. Lord, maybe we won't sing but where the scripture is just echoed out, proclaimed out from our mouths to others. Lord, you've not only been so good to your people, Israel, you've been so good to us through Jesus Christ. And I pray that this new year we would rejoice in everything good you've done for us as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.